When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary. Because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically for months. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We begin tonight with the big story. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell reiterated today on Capitol Hill that the labor market has a long way to go as it recovers from jobs lost in the pandemic. I've got sound on this from his testimony before the House Financial Services Committee. Take a listen. We have 10 million fewer people working on payroll jobs than we had just one year ago today. And that uh, the unemployment rate, the reported rate is 6.3%, that if you include people who were in the labor force and indeed working in February and a couple of other adjustments, you get to almost a 10% unemployment rate. So there's a lot of slack in the labor market and, and a long way to go to, to maximum employment. Let's go right to Capitol Hill, where the Budget Committee Chairman, John Yarmuth, a Democrat from Kentucky, is joining us. Mr. Chairman, thank you for joining us. I, I got to be candid here. Uh, there's a, 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 a real partisan debate that has emerged on minimum wage that's a part of this $1.9 trillion stimulus deal. You heard it right there from the Fed Chairman, the need for more economic support. When can that minimum wage get raised? Well, we, we hope in a, in a couple of weeks we're going to put it in. I mean, it's in the House bill that we're going to pass on Friday night, uh, taking it to $15 an hour by 2025. And, uh, you know, it may face some challenges in the Senate, but uh, we're going to we're going to pass it here in the House and see what the Senate does with it. When you hear Republicans uh, say that the minimum wage is just something that financially the country nor small businesses can afford, what is your response to that criticism? Well, my response is that, you know, six, eight months ago, we were paying tribute, honoring people like the grocery uh, shelf stockers and bus drivers and sanitation workers and, and people who were doing jobs that we never thought were really critical. And now we found out that they're critical. And I think now it's time that uh, we actually reward them financially for the important work that they're doing. But beyond those people, uh, we haven't raised the federal minimum wage since 2007. That was my, my first month on the job here. And 
Meanwhile, most, most areas of the, of the country are already at 10, 11, 12 dollars uh, an hour or more. So what we found in places like Seattle and other places is that when you raise the minimum wage, the economy actually prospers. You have so many more people who are out being uh, spenders and, and uh, the, all of that money goes back into those economies and it ends up being a growth stimulus uh, proposal and not something that kills jobs. You know, I was struck by this, that the, in addition to the minimum wage, the, the Republicans are also raising the issue that they feel that they don't want to have to bail out uh, states that they argue are controlled by Democrats <laughs> and, and, that, and, and that, quite frankly, that, that they shouldn't be, that their taxpayer constituents shouldn't be on the hook for it. Uh, what's your, you know, do you agree, I, I take it you don't agree with that assessment? No, I had a meeting the other day with the uh, uh, U.S. Conference of Mayors, for instance. There were a lot of Republicans on that uh, Zoom meeting, and all of them are very enthusiastic about this package. People like Jim Justice in West Virginia and uh, Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas, very, very red states, uh, think this is a good idea. They need the, the help. And, you know, I, I know that the states have differed in how much revenue they've lost, but every state has suffered an economic impact. And the money that we're providing here doesn't just go to uh, make up for lost revenues. It also enables states to do things that help save businesses and help save institutions in their, their community and their state. So this, uh, this is something that is, is way beyond just re replacing tax revenue. And again, I don't think we have red, red roads and blue roads, at least I'm not, I haven't seen many, uh, or red water systems or blue water systems or red schools or blue schools. And, and, and that's the way we're looking at this. Every state has been impacted. Chairman Yarmouth, I always find this fascinating that you were actually the congressman for Senate Major for Leader McConnell's <laughs> congressional district. I, I never knew that uh, until my show prep this morning. How's that relationship? Yeah. Well, I've known Mitch for a long time, since 1968. Uh, I was a Republican, actually, until 1985. We've obviously gone in very different directions since then. Uh, you know, we're civil, we get along, but uh, on policy, we're, we're poles apart, as you would say. All right, I gotta ask you one more question, just so I know you're tight on time, but before I let you go, uh, could a COVID stimulus find passage along with a budget vote to get into the weeds here? I'm sorry, Kevin. I missed it. Could, I, could it? Could it a COVID? COVID could it find it? Could it find it with a budget vote? A, In a terms of the vote. timeline. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're gonna. I mean, we're we're doing it with the budget reconciliation process. Uh, we're going to rules committee on Friday morning. Uh, we're bringing the budget reconciliation, the bill, the American Rescue Plan, to the floor Friday night, and uh, we'll pass it and then send it along to the Senate. The Senate will do with it what it will next week, and presumably we'll get it back the week of March 8th, and then we'll uh, get it signed into law. All right, we'll leave it there. I know you're busy, and I can hear it in the background right there on Capitol Hill. That's uh, Budget Committee Chairman John Yarmuth uh, joining us, uh, the Democrat uh, from uh, Kentucky. Uh, really, I guess, some busy times back there on Capitol Hill. Let's uh, bring into this conversation our team, our Bloomberg uh, politics contributor, uh, Rick Davis, who was listening to that uh, interview. Uh, Rick, I mean, you hear it right there, just uh, the tension on the issue of minimum wage, as well as uh, the, the response that Democrats are mounting to this ongoing criticism that Republicans don't want to bail out uh, Democratic states.
Yeah, I think you picked the one key issue within this package that actually is the news item, and that is that uh, the Republicans want to strip out this minimum wage uh, component to the stimulus package, and the Democrats are holding firm. They see a lot of popularity around this package, and and they see an opportunity to to raise the race. I wouldn't be surprised that if this gets stripped out in the, the Senate version, which I think everybody— expects it to be done, that there isn't a standalone bill in the House to keep pressing this issue of minimum wage in the House of Representatives. You know, and, and I was struck by Senator Chuck Schumer today, and I believe we've got the sound on this in our in our list. Senator Chuck Schumer said that Republicans want everyone on board to try to sink the latest stimulus bill. Here's the sound on that from Schumer. According to a report in CNN, Republican leaders are maneuvering to get every single Republican member to oppose the emerging legislation. Make no mistake, Republicans oppose the American Rescue Plan to the detriment of the country. Let's bring into this conversation Roger Zackheim. He is the director of the Ronald Reagan Institute and the former deputy assistant secretary of defense and former general counsel uh, for the U.S. House Armed Services Committee. Roger, it's great to have you on the program. What, you, know, you hear that from Schumer, uh, the political battle lines really being drawn out of the likely advancement of this $1.9 trillion stimulus bill as it heads to the Senate next week. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising. Uh, it's partisan uh, with $1.9 trillion uh, with a lot of Democratic priorities. Uh, you're going to have Republicans pushing back. Uh, if they wanted to fashion a bipartisan bill, it would look quite different, obviously focusing on those areas of the spending bill that go directly to COVID-19. Uh, as you get to some of these other areas, uh, the connection to COVID becomes more attenuated, particularly where the money won't be spent, in some cases, out to 2024, 26, or 28. Uh, and, and so you know, the Democrats, they have majorities in, in both chambers, and they're taking advantage of it. Hey, Roger, this is Rick Davis, and uh, thank you for being on the program. And having served in the Reagan White House, I, I remember uh, the uh, president used to say, you know, I, I, I go into a legislative fight for 100 percent of what I want, but I'll sign a bill for 80 percent of what I can get. And uh, <laughs> should there have been a, uh, a better effort by this administration to try and cobble together uh, what has been uh, in four previous uh, uh, stimulus bills, a bipartisan effort to solve this problem economically. Well, yeah, you're channeling Reagan there, and uh, great to be with you. And, and the answer is, I think, from a Republican standpoint, absolutely yes. And perhaps I wonder if President Biden is thinking the same. Uh, he's got other priorities uh, for his administration. And to come out with you know what the Wall Street Journal has called this blowout spending bill, uh, it may limit his ability, that is, President Biden's ability to get other things done because they seem to be going for 100 percent of what they want. You know, I think that point specifically in terms of regardless of the outcome, and it's likely going to pass on this economic stimulus package, the effect of the of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital, not just the top line budget number, but the but the political capital that is being expended uh, by this White House, by uh, Democratic leadership, is going to play a significant role in the cost of negotiations that they are able to do with the Democratic Socialists and the far left flank of their party on issues pertaining to immigration and, yes, including to infrastructure. But it's to bring it back to the immediacy of the current debate, 
you know, Fed Chairman Jay Powell once again reiterated today in his testimony that that it could take more than three years to achieve their inflation goal. And this inflation debate has really been heating up uh, amongst all of the the, the, the policy wonks uh, here in Washington, D.C. and up there on Wall Street. Here's the sound on this from Fed Chairman Jay Powell. Take a listen. We want inflation to average 2% over time. And the reason we want that is that we want inflation expectations to be anchored right at 2% and not somewhat below 2%. We believe we can do it, believe we will do it. It, it may take more than three years, but you know, we'll update that. Every quarter we update that assessment and we'll see, uh, we'll see how that goes. Rick Davis, to, to, to punt it to you here, I mean, he's pushing back on concerns of prices rising and overheating, but has he been able to divorce himself uh, from the political back and forth that is going on over this stimulus? Yeah, I think to some degree he's he's coming out of a period of deflationary activity, right? And that hasn't helped the economy. Uh, the markets have responded well to what's been happening on the stimulus front for the last two years. But I think that Chairman Powell is just trying to put some rational bumpers around this inflation argument. And, and for him to come out today and say, look, We've got a target at 2%, and it may take us three years to get there, should calm the markets down a bit that, 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 the, that the Fed doesn't have a, per, a, a perspective on inflation that is going to you know, let the markets get out of control. So I think what he's trying to do is be respectful of the inflation argument, but still make the case, as you pointed out earlier, Kevin, that, um, that we need a stimulus. He's been very kg about whether or not he wants this stimulus but but he does want more activity and the unemployment number is what he seems to be mostly focused on and i can just keep going back to the fact that uh, to, to your point the central bank is saying yes we need more stimulus and even republicans are talking about hundreds of billions of dollars they differ of course in terms of that top line number much more coming up next i'm kevin cerilli this is bloomberg This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Beautiful day here in the nation's capital. I got to tell you, I've got spring fever. You know, I, I snuck a jog in. Don't tell the boss on my lunch break. Rick Davis is with us, Bloomberg politics contributor. Rick, I mean, spring is here. My dad got scheduled for a vaccine. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. We got to inject some optimism out there. Am I right, my friend? I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. I'm now feeling very guilty. I didn't get outside to run. I did run inside this morning, but it was too <laughs> cold outside by the time I was up. But, you know, uh, I, I totally I agree. I, I honestly feel like this is a different uh, period of time where, you know, maybe COVID is going to get tackled. We've got all these vaccines happening. Yes. Good, good work for your father to get, get a, get a shot. In his so arm. that's great. Get this. I got to give credit to my cousin who actually lives in Hong Kong. I have a cousin in Hong Kong. And uh, she was staying up because, uh, well, I guess she wasn't staying up, but the time difference worked in the favor. She kept hitting refresh and then got him in to uh, a place back in Delco where I grew up. So anyway, shout out to my cousin for that. Good news. Good news. More people getting vaccines. Got to have that optimism. 
it was a better day for me, I guess, than for the leaders of the Republican Party in the House at their at their press conference. Uh, did you see this, Rick Davis? So they gave a press conference, Leader McCarthy and Congresswoman Liz Cheney. And one of the reporters asked about whether or not former President Donald Trump should speak at CPAC this weekend. If this soundbite doesn't illustrate what's happening right now in the Republican Party, I don't know what does. Here's the sound on this exchange. It really captures it. Here it is. Take a listen. On the leadership, especially Congresswoman Cheney, do you believe President Trump should be speaking, or former President Trump should be speaking at CPAC this weekend? Yes, he should. Congresswoman Cheney? Uh, that's up to CPAC. I've, I've been clear in my views about uh, President Trump and, and the extent to which following, the extent to which following January 6th, uh, I, don't, I don't believe that he should be playing a role in the future of the party. I mean, Rick Davis, wow, wow. You've got Kevin McCarthy saying, yes, he should speak. Liz Cheney saying, no, he should not. Yeah, and this comes just a few weeks after a vote of confidence within the GOP caucus in the House that, that kept Liz Cheney in a, in a seat uh, that, uh, of leadership. So uh, I, I got to tell you, uh, it, it, is, it is a party that has now got a fault line, and that fault line is Donald Trump. And, 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 it's, and it's even more distinct when you move over to how Mitch McConnell, the leader of the caucus in the Senate, feels about the same situation. Yeah, Roger Zackheim's with us. He's the director of the Ronald Reagan Institute. Roger, Roger, is it the party of Reagan anymore, or is it a divide between McCarthy and Cheney? This is the party of Reagan and Lincoln, uh, and I know that because you speak to any Republican, and they'll tell you that. Uh, but in terms of the future of the party— uh, that's the debate. Um, and the clip you shared captures it, whether the Republican Party uh, wants to have President Trump continue to define it or whether other Republicans want to move on and find other voices to lead the party. Um, and that won't be resolved in today's conference. It's going to play out uh, in, in the coming weeks, months and, and years, frankly. So, Roger, and we're going to talk about about your conversations on the national security front coming up in, in the next half hour. And you just had a brilliant interview with Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas uh, for his positions on China. And, and we'll, we're going to get Thank to you. that. But another part of your role as the director of the Ronald Reagan Institute is you talk with incredibly influential Republicans. And so how does this party unify ahead of the midterms when the leaders are so bullish on recapturing control of the House of Representatives, when you've got such a clear divide right now uh, between McCarthy and Cheney, and it's spilling over where they're standing next to each other on the same stage, socially distanced, of a press conference for the caucus? Well, I think you put your finger on it. It's how do you win? How do you become majority party? And they got very close in the House of Representatives uh, in the last election. Um, and that's what's going to define the direction they go. Elected officials want to be elected. They want to stay elected. They want to have the governing majority. They failed to do that in the last election. And depending on the recipe they put together for 2022, will they determine whether it's uh, a party that double downs on the ideas and principles uh, that were advanced in the last administration, or if they go in a different direction. Uh, yeah. 20 and Roger, I was just going to say this question. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, you point out the, the elections of the future, 2022, are going to define a lot of that. And, and obviously, we know Kevin McCarthy is working hard to try and 
get every help he can. And that would include Donald Trump, you know, for a, a Republican majority in the House. But when you look at the Senate, it's a totally different picture where you have, you know, 10 of the, the 30, uh, 10 of the 14 Democratic seats that are up are in states that Donald Trump won in 2016. And only two of the states that are up for Republicans, 20 in total, uh, Biden won in this last term. So uh, it's a completely different uh, animal of a different color, so to speak, when it comes to what Republican priorities are, and depending on whether it's a statewide race or a district race and who the primary might be. Uh, that's a really great point. I'm curious to see if there's any oxygen in the room for a new uh, type of Republican in the party of a new generation when uh, you've got so many of these household name politicians drowning out uh, so much of the noise. Much more coming up next. We go to one of those Republicans on the Hill. That's coming up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. Next on the telephone line, Congressman James Comer, a Republican representing Kentucky's first congressional district. He wrote to Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney today urging for transparency on Governor Andrew Cuomo, accompanied by none other than uh, Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor. Uh, joining us on the uh, telephone line, Congressman James Comer, a Republican representing Kentucky's first congressional district. He's also the top Republican on the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. Uh, Congressman, I want to talk to you about stimulus, but but first I want to get to a letter that you sent uh, to uh, uh, regarding Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, with regards to issuing a subpoena to the chairwoman of the committee, Carolyn Maloney of New York, about transparency as it relates to deaths in nursing homes. Uh, have you gotten a response yet from the chairwoman? We have not gotten a response yet. We sent the letter today. Uh, I would be surprised if she even responded because the select subcommittee that has been investigating everything related to COVID is a subcommittee of the full committee of oversight. So this subcommittee has been on top of all the the wrongdoing with respect to Cuomo's nursing home policy and transferring COVID positive patients to nursing homes from day one. In fact, I think this sub select subcommittee is the committee that first broke the news on that. So uh, the people of America, especially the families in New York who have lost loved ones, deserve transparency. They deserve to know what actually happened, what was the decision-making process, did Governor Cuomo, in fact, deflate the numbers on the actual nursing home death. And I think that that's something that the oversight committee should take up since we've spent so much time and resources on the select committee. So uh, Maloney should do this. It's her state. Uh, it's her committee. And uh, we'll just be waiting to hear back her response. 
Uh, we're going to keep a careful eye on that story, but let's also now turn to the financial matters uh, of the day, uh, particularly this $1.9 trillion stimulus plan uh, that is likely going to pass out of the House of Representatives on Friday, and then it, of course, goes to the Senate. Uh, you detailed in a Fox News op-ed on the COVID spending that this is the wrong time uh, and the wrong plan for the wrong time. Uh, elaborate why you are against this plan. Well, we have already passed $4 trillion in bipartisan stimulus. And we've learned recently that almost a trillion dollars of that initial $4 trillion has been unspent. So if you can imagine, $4 trillion is more money than the federal government can even spend. Now the Democrats want to pass another $2 trillion? Only 9% of this $2 trillion stimulus plan that the Democrats are trying to push through, less than 9% is COVID-related. That, that deals with putting COVID shots in, in people's arms and, and testing and things like that. The bill, per, it's a wish list. It's a liberal wish list for Pelosi. It's $350 billion for state and local governments, so it's rewarding states that, that kept their state shut down. Uh, it's $135 million for the National Endowment for Arts. $12 billion for foreign aid, $50 million for Planned Parenthood. These aren't the things that I think we need to be borrowing money from our children and grandchildren to pay for today. And that's what I've said about this bill. It's immoral because of what it does to the, the national debt that our children and, and grandchildren are going to have to pay for. So Congressman Comer, you, 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 know, you point out uh, that uh, you, you, you can't find a trillion dollars worth of the four trillion that's already been uh, allocated uh, to COVID relief. And, and I'm curious because we've heard a lot of different numbers as to what's outstanding from the Trump administration COVID relief funds. And where, where is that money? I mean, that's the biggest number I've heard uh, out in the public. And, uh, and, and, and is it in? accounts that are accessible to be applied to the current crisis? It's scattered in different funds. You have a lot of unspent PPP funds. You have unspent state and local funds. The CARES Act was uh, a broad piece of legislation that was very open-ended, and a lot of agencies, uh, local municipalities, a lot of uh, entities that got money from from the CARES Act for healthcare-related expenses, for uh, economic stimulus. They're just hoarding that money because they don't need it. And we listed in an over, uh, oversight committee hearing all the different municipalities that were represented by Democrat members on the committee who who represent cities that haven't spent 35 to 55% of their COVID funds, but yet they're asking for $350 billion more in state and local funds. It's unneeded. Uh, I fear that we keep printing money. Not only does it run the debt up on our children and grandchildren, it also is going to create inflation. So I think this is bad policy, and the American taxpayers deserve to know where the original $4 trillion spent. They don't even have that answer. I'm going to rip up the script here because I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. People, when they think of Kentucky, they often think of you know bourbon, right? But uh, you've actually yeah. put hemp and the CBD market uh, on the map 
in Kentucky. You are one of the leading Republicans uh, in, in, in the caucus, really, Congressman uh, James mm-hmm. Comer, who's with us, uh, who's really pushing for there to be more research and development in this uh, emerging industry. Uh, what's the, the, the most uh, prescient issue pertaining the hemp industry uh, as it relates to economic development in your district? Well, in my district, there was a lot of hemp grown by Kentucky farmers for CBD oil. And the FDA will not make a decision on which direction they want to go with respect to CBD oil. You have a lot of CBD oil that's on the market today, and I take CBD oil. I've been very public about that. I think it's a a very uh, good alternative uh, medicine type, but it needs to be regulated. You have a lot of companies that... Mm. uh, are, are good actors, and you have a lot of companies that are bad actors that are selling products that, that really don't have what they what they need. So we want to regulate it as yeah. a nutraceutical. Right. Come back on and talk to us more about that, because I think that's a that's some, an issue to watch. That's much more uh, coming up next. We pivot to geopolitics. That's Congressman James Comer taking us down to Kentucky. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, accompanied by Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics Contributor, and uh, Roger Zakheim, who is the director of the Ronald Reagan Institute. Let's pivot now to what I think is arguably the most important geopolitical story of the day. President Biden signing executive orders to study the U.S. dependence upon the global supply chain. He is uh, calling for there to be a 100-day review period. Uh, And candidly, this is all about China uh, and the relationship that the United States has on China, uh, particularly as we have a shortage on a host of different products, including semiconductor chips. Uh, This is going to have massive implications for Japan, Taiwan, Australia, even to some extent. Uh, and, And there are are plants, there are auto industry plants, folks, that are sitting idle across this country right now and threatening to put U.S. workers out of work. This is the one area, I'll be frank with you, where Republicans and Democrats do actually agree that the United States is too dependent upon uh, China for its supply chains. Uh, and whether it's Senator Marsha Blackburn uh, of the Republican Party or, or increasingly Senator Tom Cotton uh, of Arkansas, uh, or Democrats like uh, Chairman of the Intel Committee, Mark Warner, uh, they've been really talking about this for, for quite some time. I want to go to Roger uh, first, because you actually spoke with Senator Cotton uh, just a couple of days ago and, and about these issues. Uh, do you think that this is just long overdue geopolitical policy that the U.S. start to distance itself in order to better position itself uh, in catastrophic situations from its reliance on China? I mean, it's been building for some time now. One of the most significant achievements of the Trump administration was to focus squarely on the competition, is what policymakers call it, with China. And so what you saw today out of the Biden White House was continuity uh, on this issue set. COVID-19 has only reinforced and made Americans truly internalize uh, what dependency on China uh, means and what it could mean to our security. Only difference is if you read the White House fact sheet, about this executive order, it doesn't name China. Uh, as you recall, the Trump administration 
uh, never miss an opportunity to name China. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's even, a great they even point. named a, uh, a virus after it, I believe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to. You know, I think that's it is fascinating that they have decided. What do you think that means? I mean, let me follow up, Roger. Why didn't they name China in their fact sheet in a policy that is specifically all about China? Because it's not just about China. Uh, and it was focusing on America's need really uh, to uh, not just be less dependent, but also to onshore uh, in, within the United States. Uh, but it actually surprised me. Uh, uh, President Biden spoke at an international conference virtually uh, about a week ago or so and, uh, you know, had no issue calling out China. Uh, he talked about that it was the competition would continue. That's why there's continuity and also identified areas of cooperation. Uh, but it is surprising to me that when you're talking about, you know, the criticality of the supply chains and onshoring, bringing this manufacturing back to the United States at a moment when we're still within this global pandemic and, as you referenced, we have manufacturers in the auto industry that can get uh, the chips they need. Uh, you might as well call it out. We all knew who the elf in the room is. Yeah, and I, I was uh, going to say, if we ahead. could just dial back to what Kevin said earlier about um, the conversation you had with uh, Senator Cotton. I mean, obviously not from the same ideological perspective as president, but the paper he wrote that you all were discussing, Beat China, Targeted Decoupling, this is exactly what Biden announced today, decoupling on computer chips, decoupling on you know, EV batteries, pharmaceuticals, uh, rare earth minerals. Um, all of those are, are the things we've become dependent upon uh, with China. And, and it's, it certainly seems to me that without saying so, he's, he's uh, mimicking the arguments being made by a, a very conservative Senator Tom Cotton. Yeah, I'm agree with that. Yeah, go ahead, um, and 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 you know, Tom Cotton does not mince words, and and the title of his report um, makes that pretty clear. Beat China. Uh, Tom Cotton was emphasizing uh, this area of economic security and dependence on China, uh, and there are a lot of Democrats uh, in the Congress. Charlie Schumer, probably uh, one of the biggest proponents of economic security, um, and for a long time has been talking about less dependence and actually saying that trade uh, with China is something that needs to be addressed and, and, and being a, few, few, uh, a pure free trader actually undermines our security. So you're right. There is bipartisan consensus uh, around a lot of this, although uh, Tom Cotton uh, certainly introduced the ideological component where he uh, called out China using President Reagan rhetoric uh, as an evil, evil empire. You know, and one of those Democrats is Congressman Tom Malinowski. Uh, he is a Democrat from New Jersey uh, and, and actually uh, served in the Obama administration State Department. He's actually uh, been at the forefront. He's the first Democrat, I believe, in, in this Congress uh, to say that the United States ought not to participate in the upcoming 2022 Winter Olympic Games. Uh, and uh, there have been a host of, of different Republicans who have already come out and said that the United States uh, should not participate in the 2022 Winter Olympic Games, which, of course, Beijing is hosting uh, because of China's human rights abuses and a host of other uh, issues. Uh, another one of those Republicans is uh, Congressman John Katko, a Republican of New York. Uh, when you talk to whether it's uh, Tom, Senator Cotton on, on the right or even Secretary of State Tony Blinken uh, in the Biden administration, uh, Roger, uh, it, it's, it's quite clear that there's this developing framework 
and and it's the one area that the previous administration would have uh, with this current one in agreement of developing an alliance in the West uh, with regards to cybersecurity, with regards to promoting uh, techno-democracies, as the Blinken State Department has dubbed it, uh, and getting uh, our allies to to participate in in clean, so-called, as the Trump administration labeled it, 5G networks, and promoting continuity that would allow for that type of assurance amongst our allies that we're all reliant uh, upon the same type of cyber uh, protections. Do you think that this executive order today is a part of that broader strategy, Roger? Without question. Um, and they're going to study this for 100 days, but it's pretty clear the direction they're going. This kind of overlap between America uh, needs for national security and American manufacturing uh, is something that the Biden administration wants to get its arms around and will develop policies uh, that can make us less dependent. Uh, they will uh, embrace allies and make allies part of the solution, which is important. And the difference here is between democratic countries countries that embrace freedom, countries that are open, uh, they will be on our side, and we need to make sure we have economically sound approaches to work with them to relieve not only our dependency on China, but to relieve their dependency on China. We're not talking about exporting soybeans. You know, that's not the problem, or even, you know, uh, kind of low-end manufacturing goods. It's the stuff that really will determine who will be uh, the economic powerhouse and, by extension, the national security powerhouse for the 21st century. That's what's at stake here. Rick Davis, I mean, when you, when you listen to, to Roger Zakheim, who, uh, uh, of the Ronald Reagan Institute, uh, discuss that, I mean, there really is, from a geopolitical sense, continuity of where Republicans and Democrats are in terms of the desired outcome, but there is massive difference in terms of the rhetorical approaches that both of the parties take. Who is set to gain internationally from this, as we have covered it, uh, 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 wanting to decouple uh, on in certain industries from China? Is it Japan, for example? Is it Australia, for example? Well, I think Roger makes a good point about alliances and, and the West. Uh, when you start talking about trusted foundry, you know, what are the products we're going to care about? We are the biggest consumer in the world. Uh, and so when we turn to our Western allies and say, you know what, we would prefer either if we can't make it at home, we'd buy it from you. So do we trust the manufacturing processes for chips in Australia? And do they have the capacity to service our needs? Let's buy there. Europe is exactly the same situation. Here's how we can circle the Western nations, liberal democracies alliance around uh, industry giving preference to those companies that don't have China exposure and therefore isolate China on the economic terms that we can probably handle over the next 10 years. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Roger Zakheim, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute. Be sure to go to their website to check out his conversation with Senator Tom Cotton. February is Black History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is celebrating pivotal moments in U.S. black history each day. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in black history in 1864, Rebecca Lee Crumpler becomes the first black woman to receive an MD degree. To put that into perspective, in 1860, there were only 300 women out of 54,543 physicians in the United States. None of them were African-American. 
Crumpler first worked as a nurse in Charlestown, Massachusetts, before she was accepted into the New England Female Medical College. It was during a time when male physicians claimed women did not have the physical strength to practice medicine. In 1883, Crumpler released Book of Medical Discourses, which was one of the first medical books written by an African-American. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for me. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. Coming up uh, all throughout the week, we're going to continue to talk about that economic stimulus bill. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.